0: Welcome to the 6th FG Podcast of 2015 related to the FG Twitter debate on Tuesday 9th of June 2015 entitled Frontline Hepatology Complications of Cirrhosis Portal Hypertension. My name is Dr. Philip Smith, I'm the Trainee Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and a Registrar in London and I'm delighted to introduce the Deputy Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and Professor of Hepatology, Professor Andreas Gutanas and a GI unit at the University of Barcelona. Professor Katanas is a senior specialist and clinical professor of the Institute of Digestive Diseases and Metabolism at the Hospital Clinic at the University of Barcelona. He previously held a post of attending gastroenterologist and hepatologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in the U.S.A., Professor Katanas is board-certified in internal medicine, gastroenterology, and hepatology by the American Board of Internal Medicine. His main expertise and research interests are complications of cirrhosis, interventional procedures in patients with cirrhosis, and portal hypertension, and biliary complications in liver transplant recipients. He has over 120 publications in peer-reviewed journals and over 70 chapters in uh, medical textbooks, and also recently offered a textbook on the complication of cirrhosis. He has res- uh, delivered numerous invited lectures around the globe on topics related to complication, cirrhosis, and liver transplantation. He serves on multiple GI hepatology editorial boards of several GI hepatology journals, in addition to Frontline Gastroenterology, and is a member of a number of different expert committees for many different hepatology societies worldwide. Professor Katanas, thank you for doing this podcast to accompany your excellent Twitter debate, which you included a number of slides. Um, a summary of the Twitter debate will be on the website, uh, the FG website also, and these slides will also be included underneath this podcast. So the, the topic we focused on in, during the FG debate is, is obviously a very important one that gastroenterologists and hepatologists have encountered. With that in mind, can you briefly describe the scope, the scale and the size of the problem associated with cirrhosis?
1: Well, thank you very much for for your call and uh, i'm I'm very honored to be part of this podcast. It's uh, really amazing what uh, you have done with uh frontline gastroenterology. so basically, it is a huge problem because as you uh probably know, most practicing clinicians do encounter this complication uh in in many patients and to give you a number it's a, it's thought to be the twelfth leading cause of mortality in the United States. Count for every th- over 3,000 deaths. In Europe, it's also a prevalent disease and um, it's, it's estimated to be the seventh most common cause of death in Europe. So obviously this is a big concern and in addition the EU data uh, include that, that liver diseases are estimated to affect 6% of the European Union's population. So this certainly is, is something that we must be worried about. Uh, There are several uh, other problems with it because it it accounts for about 5% of deaths of people between the ages of 45 and 55. And it's a growing annual incidence It's approximately 72 cases per 100,000 persons. And this is mainly related to hepatitis C, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and also alcohol abuse. So it certainly is a big problem, and we, um, as physicians, need to focus on trying to diagnose and hopefully preventing complications from cirrhosis occurring. And that's uh, that's basically the main problem with it.
0: It's very clear, and I'm sure everybody listening to this will know that cirrhosis is a major problem. But for the, the trainees and aspiring hepatologists listening, how do you actually go about defining cirrhosis? And then, on top of that, how do you how do you suspect somebody has a ACLD?
1: So um, that's a fantastic question because you know we've been taught in medical school, you know, a patient with cirrhosis is somebody that's very very sick. But it turns out that um, we, we often see people that have advanced chronic liver disease that do not have features of advanced cirrhosis and this is what we can uh, term that's coined as compensated advanced liver uh, disease or compensated chronic liver disease. And this has been proposed to reflect that there's a spectrum of fibrosis and cirrhosis and there is a continuum, basically an asymptomatic patient that... and. It's often difficult to distinguish between the two. It's often not possible on clinical grounds. But basically, it's basically scarring and severe fibrosis uh, that lead to nodules in the liver that can be asymptomatic and with time progress to develop complications related to cirrhosis.
0: Okay. Thank you. Um, so a major problem cirrhosis with, uh, associated with cirrhosis um, is portal hypertension and varices. During the the, the Twitter debate, you described how we screen for these and what invasive options may be considered. Could you briefly summarise those and also finally state what your strategy is for trying to prevent uh, the varices from bleeding?
1: Well, thank you. That's a fantastic question. So first of all, we have to suspect uh, uh, cirrhosis first and uh, and what we term compensated liver disease. And you can suspect that by clinical grounds, um, physical and non-invasive tests such as blood work. But also there's uh, with transient osteography where we call fiber scan, which basically is, is a method you can actually tease out the elasticity of the liver and this gives you a number and w- with these numbers you can actually tease out if there's a lot of scarring or not and if you have high levels of this fiber scan you can uh, obviously think that these are highly sensitive for uh, a chronic liver disease so if they're over 15 kilopascals are very high suggestive once you have cirrhosis then you are at risk of many complications but one of the main problems that that we see often and, and early into is the, the appearance of varices Varices of the esophagus, okay, appear a complication of portal hypertension. And when we see uh, patients with cirrhosis, we one of the first things we do is that we screen for the presence of esophageal varices. And we want to make sure that patients with cirrhosis, even if they don't, they don't have symptoms, want to make sure if they have varices or not. Because if they do have esophageal varices, these varices are at risk of bleeding. And if they bleed, it's a big problem for the patient, carries a significant mortality rate. So we need to identify them and prevent them from bleeding. So one of the best ways of actually uh, teasing out if somebody has varices or not, is actually doing what we call an upper endoscopy. And the upper endoscopy will basically look at the esophagus and also look at the stomach and duodenum. But by that means you can also look at the the esophagus and see if there are uh, columns of varices. And these varices can be either small or large, and they they grow about uh, if, if they grow, they grow about seven percent per year. So when they have small varices, okay, there's an indication obviously that they're scarring and they're cirrhosis and portal hypertension. And if they have large varices, this also confirms that the patient has severe portal hypertension and has advanced chronic liver disease in most instances. And if they have varices, then you have to think about a way of actually. Um, preventing these varices from having complications, mainly bleeding. So what I do is if, if I have somebody with compensated cirrhosis and they have ongoing liver disease from alcohol use or hepatitis C hasn't been treated, I do an upper endoscopy. And they have, if they have no varices at all, it means they have very little portal hypertension. And then uh, if they have no varices, I repeat the endoscopy in a couple of years. But if they have small varices, okay and they have ongoing liver injuries. I have to repeat that in about a year to see if they are growing or not and if they have la- large varices then I go ahead and treat so that when we treat is what we can call primary prophylaxis primary prophylaxis that we give them we give uh, uh, an intervention to the patient to prevent these varices from bleeding we usually start with non selective beta blockers such as propanolol And more recently, we use kerbetolol, which are very potent um, drugs that uh, decrease uh, portal pressure. The other option is to use band ligation to prevent these from bleeding. And we can use esophageal band ligation of all the varices in several sessions to make them disappear. And both methods are effective in, in trying to prevent these varices from bleeding. However, beta blockers are probably the most reasonable option to start out with um, basically because they can, they can reduce portal pressure, they're non-invasive, and they're very easy to use. However, if patients cannot tolerate beta blockers, okay, um, then the patient uh, can undergo esophageal band ligation, have a session every two to three weeks, and in about three or four sessions, the varices will disappear. So those are the two strategies. We start out with propanolol or another beta blocker to prevent these from bleeding. If there are no problems, we continue them indefinitely, and we do not have to keep checking uh, the esophagus or varices. If they cannot take beta blockers, they're intolerant to them, then we can use band ligation and eradicate the varices from the esophagus.
0: Okay, well, thank you. That was a fantastic summary of a quite a, a detailed question I asked there, so thank you. In your debate, you also discussed um, acute and chronic liver failure. It's precipitating events, and what the mortality is from this condition, plus the principles of how you manage these patients. Um, can you briefly summarize uh, these things to our listeners?
1: Yeah. So, a very interesting uh, concept now that we've been in the late last year, we've been identifying patients that have what we call acute on chronic liver failure. So, basically, what it is is that a patient has. Uh, compensated uh, cirrhosis or decompensated cirrhosis, but they are admitted to the hospital with an acute decompensation of cirrhosis and an organ failure. So, for instance, a patient that has cirrhosis okay, uh, and has ascites, that's admitted to the hospital because they have an uh, organ failure, meaning that they have uh, uh, renal failure, they have hepatic uh, uh, alcoholic hepatitis, or they have severe hepatic encephalopathy so basically it's a syndrome characterized by acute decompensation of cirrhosis so if you have one of these organ failures be that the liver, the kidney, the brain the coagulation system, the circulatory system by hypotation and shock or respiratory failure you're considered to have acute on chronic liver failure and the more organs you have involved the worse the prognosis There's a very poor survival rate with these patients about a month 30 uh, to 40% of them die, the more organ that you have, the higher the risk of bleeding. So this definition is based on on, on, on a huge study that was done to basically identify these patients. And what, the reason to identify them quickly is to basically see what the precipitants are. So you can have a precipitant of, of uh, acute on chronic liver failure in a patient with cirrhosis if they have a, a alcoholic hepatitis, if they have bacterial infections, if they have a major surgery that has decompensated them, patients that undergo TIPs. Placements, or they have um, acute hepatitis A on top of cirrhosis. Also, patients with portal vein thrombosis, or patients come in with sepsis and bacterial infections. So these patients, basically, these are triggers for this acute and chronic liver failure, and, and triggers for organ failures. So if we can identify these patients, one we can prevent them uh, these precipitant factors from from evolving, and the other thing we can do is actually give them supportive care. So supportive care is basically going to be mainly uh, related to issues to uh, considering the patient for a liver transplantation. Uh, also intensive care support for these patients many of them will need to go to the intensive care unit and undergo um, uh, a a very strict um, monitoring of their vital signs and some of them will need extracorporeal liver systems or what we call liver dialysis so there are many many things we can do for these patients in order to support them through this acute or chronic liver failure in order to consider or not liver transplantation
0: Thank you once again. That was a fantastic summary for a, for a really big topic area. Um, finally, and um, this was a question that was asked during the Twitter debate, is there, what's in the pipeline in terms of research into treatments or even cures for cirrhosis? Uh, should we feel optimistic for the fu- uh, future?
1: Oh sure, we certainly sh- should feel optimistic. There are many things that are, are uh, that are actually happening, and um, what, what, so we ha- we have to think about is one what's what the etiology of your chronic liver disease? Is, if you have hepatitis C, if you have hepatitis B, if you have alcoholic liver disease, or you have an alcoholic fatty liver disease. So the pipeline for problems, we have mainly right now we have the new uh, direct antiviral agents that are oral that actually in patients with cirrhosis have very high uh, sustained virological response rates over 90 to 95 percent of these patients will have a virological response rate but more importantly these patients once they, once they uh, eradicate the virus if they have hepatitis C and they have cirrhosis they, their cirrhosis will regress in more than 50 percent of cases so more than a pipeline this is now a treatment and we have to wait for the data to come out the other uh, the other uh, um, Areas that are hot right now are NASH and uh, non alcoholic fatty liver disease. And this is now the new epidemic, and this is uh, the number one cause of cirrhosis in patients without uh, hepatitis C right now. Uh, An alcoholic fatty liver disease is certainly something that we need to focus on because we have to not only uh, uh, treat uh, metabolic syndrome and obesity, but there are some new targets that are out there that might be interesting. And the main one right now is a a betacolic acid or farcinoid X receptor antagonists. These drugs are basically now being used for cholestatic diseases like primary biliary cirrhosis, but they seem to play a very important role in the regression of fibrosis in patients with uh, an alcoholic fatty liver disease. So there's certainly uh, new drugs out there. There's also caspase inhibitors, which are being evaluated. But uh, as we speak right now, the, the the main key right now is to prevent these things from happening. And also with alcohol abuse is it's the, the, the option of uh, counsel and caring for these patients. But in terms of of, uh, new drugs uh, that regress cirrhosis, cirrhosis, um, the the antiviral agents, both for hepatitis C and hepatitis B, and these new drugs, the colic acid is very promising right now.
0: Well, thank you once again, uh, Professor Katanas, for your excellent Twitter debate and this brilliant podcast. And also thank you for all the amazing work you do for Frontline Gastroenterology. We're really grateful for your support and time. The slides from the FG debate will be available to look at the end of uh, this podcast in a link. The next Frontline Gastroenterology Twitter debate is with Dr. Mark McClendon, who's a consultant gastroenterologist from the Sheffield Teaching Hospitals and is one of the UK's leading experts on capsule endoscopy. This is on Tuesday, the 7th of July, 2015, 8th until 9pm GMT and discuss Frontline Capsule Endoscopy. The end of the endoscope is nigh. We hope you can join us then using the hashtag #FGDebate.